Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The most widely used and studied instrument for screening for depression during pregnancy is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, referred to as the EPDS. But although the EPDS does identify significant numbers of pregnant women with depression, many women scoring above the cutoff for possible clinical depression are not depressed. Little is known about these women. To learn more, the authors of this article conducted a study with the aim to investigate the mental health characteristics of women who screen positive for depression with the EPDS during pregnancy. The study received funding from the Icelandic Center for Research, Wyeth Research Fund, and four other nonprofit institutions. Consecutive women receiving antenatal care in primary care clinics were invited to complete the EPDS in week 16 of pregnancy. All women who screened positive on the EPDS and randomly selected women who screened negative on the EPDS were invited to participate in a diagnostic psychiatric interview. The study results showed that some of the women had mental disorders other than depression, for example, anxiety disorders, bipolar disorder, and eating disorders. Others did not have any mental disorder at all. The study further showed that many of those women were correctly identified by the EPDS as having coexisting mental disorders such as anxiety disorders. Finally, those women scoring high on the EPDS were more likely to be psychosocially vulnerable. These vulnerabilities may be associated with adverse outcomes, even if no mental disorder is present. The authors conclude that it is important for clinicians to conduct a comprehensive clinical assessment following the use of the EPDS during pregnancy to ensure that women who screen positive on the EPDS receive appropriate help. Acculturation is the process by which an immigrant acquires culture of the dominant society. In some immigrant populations, acculturation is associated with increased risk for suicide. In a study funded by the NIH, Perez Rodriguez and colleagues tested the impact of aged migration, time in the United States, social network composition, language, and race-ethnic orientation on suicidal ideation and attempts in U.S. Hispanics. They used data from the National Epidemiologic Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions. Higher scores on all measures of acculturation were associated with higher risk for suicidal ideation and attempts, particularly younger age at migration, longer time in the United States, higher English language orientation, lower Hispanic social network, and lower Hispanic ethnic identification. Perceived discrimination based on race or ethnicity was also associated with lifetime ideation and attempts. 
The authors conclude that aspects of traditional Hispanic culture, such as high social support and moral objections to suicide, are potential targets for public health interventions aimed at decreasing suicide risk. Rhythm disturbances are a key clinical feature of bipolar disorder. In this part of a two-study focus on biological rhythms and bipolar disorder, Dr. Robert Gonzalez and colleagues aim to test the relationships between mood disturbances and rhythm disturbances. Their work was funded by grants from NARSAD and the National Institute of Mental Health. To assess rhythms in patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the authors used actigraphy, a device designed to record physical movements. The study results showed that rhythm disturbances were related to mania, but not depression. In addition, a relationship was found between rhythm disturbances and other clinical symptoms, such as a decreased need for sleep, disturbances in thought content, and an increase in motor activity and energy. The authors conclude that their findings support the idea that a rhythm disturbance exists in bipolar disorder. Actigraphy may prove to be a useful tool in monitoring patients with bipolar disorder and in continuing to assess the possible underlying causes of the illness. Rhythm disruption is an important feature of bipolar disorder. In this second part of a two-study focus on rhythm disruptions in bipolar disorder, Dr. Robert Gonzalez summarizes the literature for previous findings on this topic. He received support for this review from the National Institute of Mental Health. Various types of rhythm disturbances have been reported in bipolar disorder. For example, many patients with bipolar disorder have a seasonal pattern to their mood episodes. Some prefer that their daily activities occur in the evening, and others experience disturbances in daily social rhythms. Disturbances in sleep-wake cycles and hormone secretion have been reported. Evidence also suggests that variations in circadian genes, or the genes responsible for keeping our bodily rhythms, may be related to bipolar disorder. Understanding biological rhythms is of particular importance, as rhythm disturbance may be associated with the onset of symptoms as well as a worse course of illness in bipolar disorder. Some literature suggests that treatments focusing on stabilizing rhythms may be a benefit in treating this debilitating disorder. The author concludes that a greater understanding of rhythm disturbances in bipolar disorder may provide knowledge about the possible causes of the illness and may aid in the development of treatments. Fragile X syndrome is an autism-like disease characterized by learning difficulties and behavioral issues. For example, shyness, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, and aggression. Treatments for Fragile X syndrome are currently limited to treating individual symptoms of the disease with drugs such as antidepressants and antipsychotics. The effects of these treatments vary widely between patients, and some patients may require treatment with several drugs to treat different symptoms simultaneously. 
Over the last 20 years, extensive research has led to the understanding of the molecular processes that are defective in patients with Fragile X syndrome. In recent years, several drugs have been developed that target the genetic cause of the disease rather than the individual symptoms. These drugs are now being tested in clinical trials with varying degrees of success. This review, which was funded by Novartis, summarizes our current understanding of Fragile X syndrome, the ongoing clinical trials of potential new therapies, and the challenges. In the DSM-5, the maximum age of onset for the diagnosis of ADHD has been increased from 7 to 12 years old. However, little is known about the measurement properties of ADHD symptoms according to the age at symptom onset. Using data from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, a group of French researchers compared the psychometric properties of the 18 ADHD symptoms according to the following three groups with different ages of onset, younger than 7 years, 7 to 12 years, and 13 to 18 years. A two-parameter item response model was used to estimate differential item functioning between these groups. In both the inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity dimensions, there was no group differential item functioning. This finding suggests that expression of ADHD symptoms is not affected by age and onset. The authors conclude that their findings provide psychometric support to the DSM-5's increase in the age at onset criterion. They also believe that their data suggests that the criterion could be extended to 18 years of age without modifying the psychometric properties of ADHD symptoms, but that clinical and public health implications should be taken into account before considering further changes in the maximum age of onset. Comorbid substance use often causes diagnostic uncertainty in psychosis and may influence the course of illness. More evidence is needed to determine whether substance use disorders increase the risk of progression from other psychoses to schizophrenia and whether these effects differ for cannabis and stimulants. This study used Australian hospital data to identify more than 24,000 adults admitted with psychosis. Changes in the patient's diagnoses were examined over a two- to five-year period. The authors measured agreement between initial and final diagnosis, and they assessed the predictors of diagnostic change to or from schizophrenia. The authors found that more than one-third of people with psychosis had comorbid substance diagnoses at their index admission. More than 80% of initial diagnoses of brief, atypical, or drug-induced psychoses were later revised, including 46% that were revised to schizophrenia. Substance disorders during follow-up were associated with greater diagnostic instability, but not with a greater risk of progression to schizophrenia. Cannabis and stimulant disorders had different effects. People with ongoing cannabis disorders were more likely to progress to a diagnosis of schizophrenia, 
By contrast, people with stimulant use disorders were more likely to drop out of ongoing care. Those remaining in care had greater diagnostic instability. They were less likely to progress to later diagnoses of schizophrenia than people with no substance comorbidity and more likely to have initial diagnoses of schizophrenia revised to other conditions. The authors conclude that it is important to avoid premature closure on a diagnosis of schizophrenia, particularly when stimulant disorders are present. Response to antipsychotics is highly variable in schizophrenia, and determinants of response are not well understood, nor are they generally used to design clinical trials. The authors of this article sought to better understand factors that determine response to antipsychotic treatment. As part of a large public-private collaboration and supported by the Innovative Medicines Initiative, they assembled the largest data set to date of patient-level information from randomized, placebo-controlled trials of second-generation antipsychotics conducted by five large pharmaceutical companies. The data set included 29 placebo-controlled trials that incorporated about 9,000 patients. The authors found that while the usual length of trials is six weeks, drug-placebo differences were observable at week four with nearly the same sensitivity, and dropout rates were lower. Several attributes were associated with significantly greater drug-placebo differences on symptom improvement and rates of study completion, such as being female, being a young adult with a few years removed from one's first episode, having prominent positive and negative symptoms, and living in Eastern Europe as opposed to North America. Contrary to prevalent clinical opinion, age at illness onset and use of benzodiazepines did not show a differential treatment response, and patients just above the inclusion threshold were not overrepresented. This work suggests that proof-of-concept trials can be shorter and their efficiency improved by including an even distribution of sexes and more patients with prominent symptomatology, thus reducing patient exposure to placebo and experimental treatments. Cigarette smoking accounts for over 400,000 deaths annually in the United States. The smoking prevalence rate in the general population is approximately 20%, while it is estimated to be over 75% in patients dependent on cocaine and methamphetamine. Despite the pervasiveness and deadly consequences of smoking in addicted individuals, smoking cessation treatment is typically not provided in treatment programs for substance use disorder. This is due in part to some concerns that concurrent treatment of nicotine and stimulant dependence might be overwhelming for patients and thus might negatively impact both treatment attendance and stimulant use outcomes. The authors of this article present a randomized controlled trial conducted with 538 cocaine and or methamphetamine dependent patients. 
the researchers evaluated the impact of concurrent treatment for substance use disorder and nicotine dependence in stimulant-dependent patients. Participants were recruited from 12 outpatient treatment programs for substance use disorder. All participants received substance use disorder treatment as usually provided at the participating site. Participants assigned to concurrent treatment also received smoking cessation treatment consisting of extended-release bupropion, a nicotine inhaler, weekly individual smoking cessation counseling, and contingency management for smoking abstinence. The study received funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse Center for the Clinical Trials Network. The study results revealed no significant treatment effects on stimulant use outcomes, on drug abstinence, or on treatment attendance. Participants receiving concurrent treatment had significantly better outcomes for drug-free days at six-month follow-up. Participants receiving concurrent treatment achieved smoking abstinence at a significantly higher rate compared to participants receiving only standard substance use disorder treatment. The authors conclude that these results suggest that providing smoking cessation treatment to outpatients dependent on illicit stimulants will not worsen and may improve non-nicotine substance use outcomes. The use of prescription opioid medications is increasing in the United States, and it is associated with some risks, including lethality and overdose. In this article, the authors conducted a study in which they followed 264 patients with borderline personality disorder and 63 subjects with another type of personality disorder over a 10-year period. The study was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. At the six-year follow-up, the authors collected data about the physical health of the study subjects and their medication. They found that borderline patients were significantly more likely to report the use of prescription opioid medication than access to comparison subjects, and that the rates of use increased significantly for those in both groups. Significant predictors of opioid use among borderline patients were back pain, fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis, as well as a baseline history of drug abuse. Patients with borderline personality disorder may be particularly sensitive to physical pain, mirroring their well-known heightened sensitivity to emotional pain. At the same time, some patients with borderline personality disorder seem to be able to hurt themselves without feeling pain. The authors conclude that the use of these medications and the meaning and experience of pain in this population deserve further consideration. Several medications are available for the pharmacologic management of generalized anxiety disorder, including benzodiazepines, monoaminergic reuptake inhibitors, some first-generation tricyclics, and antipsychotics. Yet many patients fail to respond to, cannot tolerate, or develop discontinuation symptoms after use of such medications. Previous research has shown that agomelatine is efficacious in reducing symptoms and in preventing relapse of generalized anxiety disorder. 
Regulatory agencies have required an additional short-term placebo-controlled study to confirm the efficacy of agomelatine in generalized anxiety disorder, which was the goal of the authors of this article. The authors conducted a 12-week placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized, multi-center study to confirm the efficacy of agomelatine in the treatment of patients with a primary diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. The study was sponsored by Servier. The study results showed that, at endpoint, treatment with agomelatine was associated with significantly reduced anxiety symptoms and produced significant effects on measures of response and remission rates. In addition, agomelatine had a range of other positive effects, including improvement on sleep quality and functional impairment. Interestingly, the benefits of agomelatine were particularly marked in those patients with higher symptom severity at baseline. Agomelatine was well tolerated throughout the study. The authors conclude that these data confirm that agomelatine is a promising option for the short-term treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. It can be reasonably predicted that in clinical practice, agomelatine will have at least a similar efficacy to that of other available treatments. Schizophrenia is associated with increased infections across the lifespan. In particular, a well-known association exists between geriatric patients with psychosis and comorbid urinary tract infection. In this article, the authors explored the association between urinary tract infection and acute psychosis. Their study was funded by Georgia Regents University. The researchers recruited 340 acute psychiatric inpatients including 134 subjects with non-affective psychoses, 101 with affective psychoses, and 105 with alcohol use disorders, as well as 39 healthy controls. On the basis of your analysis and microscopy, 21% of subjects with non-affective psychoses, 18% with affective psychoses, 12% with alcohol use disorders, and 3% of controls had a urinary tract infection. After controlling for potential confounding factors, urinary tract infection was almost 11 times more likely in subjects with non-affective psychoses and almost 9 times more likely in subjects with psychotic depression than in controls. No significant associations were found between clinical characteristics and urinary tract infection in subjects with acute psychosis. The study findings replicate an association between urinary tract infection and acute non-affective psychosis and suggest that the association may extend to affective psychosis as well. Although underlying mechanisms remain unclear, the authors conclude that the findings highlight the potential importance of monitoring for urinary tract infection as a routine part of health screening in relevant patient populations. They further contend that recognition and treatment of urinary tract infection in acute psychiatric inpatients may also decrease risks of other adverse events during hospitalization. 
Acidinosil-L-methionine, or SAMI, is a popular and natural agent that can be used alone or in combination with standard antidepressants for treating depression. It has not yet been compared against selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. The authors of this study carried out a three-armed, placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blind clinical trial comparing the antidepressant efficacy of SAMI against S-citalopram and against placebo. The authors randomized 189 outpatients with major depressive disorder at the Massachusetts General Hospital and at Butler Hospital. Patients were randomized for 12 weeks to SAMI, 1,600 to 3,200 milligrams per day, or escitalopram, 10 to 20 milligrams per day, or placebo. Doses were escalated at six weeks in the event of non-response. The main outcome measure was the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. All treatment groups demonstrated a significant improvement of about 5 to 6 points in 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale scores, but no significant differences were observed between the three groups. Response rates were 36% for SAMI, 34% for escitalopram, and 30% for placebo. Remission rates were 28% for SAMI and for escitalopram, and 17% for placebo. Again, these findings did not differ significantly between treatment groups. Tolerability was good. Significant differences in side effects between treatment groups were observed for dizziness, anorgasmia, diminished mental acuity, and hot flashes. Gastrointestinal side effects were most commonly reported in the SAMI arm, with rates of 19% for stomach discomfort and 20% for diarrhea. The study suggests that neither SAMI nor escitalopram were superior to placebo for treatment of depression. However, this is the first comparison of SAMI against a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and therefore further comparisons between SAMI and established antidepressants are called for. This study was supported by the National Institutes of Health and the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. SAMI tosylate and matching placebo were supplied by Pharmavite. Antipsychotics are effective for managing the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, but no medications are approved for treating the negative and cognitive symptoms that can persist despite an adequate treatment response. This commentary focuses on the mechanism of action of currently available antipsychotics and discusses how targeting N-methyl-D-aspartate, or NMDA, receptors may address currently less treatable aspects of this condition, such as negative and cognitive symptoms. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at laboratory data showing that pomegranate juice inhibits intestinal CYP enzymes. Therefore, theoretically, it could affect the bioavailability of certain drugs. Dr. Andrade weighs the available data and considers whether there is enough evidence in humans to conclude that pomegranate juice does indeed have this effect. 
Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.